a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, my fellow wrong thinker. Hey, I'm glad you could join me today. There is a lot going on. We'll get to it in just a moment. I want to mention that I have some marvelous sponsors. They are deserving of your acknowledgement and your love, and maybe even your business. I'll leave that one up to you. Thanks to HSLAmmo.com, PureLight.com, Pure-Light.com, and also MonticelloCollege.org. I've got links to them in the show notes, which you can find at thebrianhydeshow.com. All right, I think we got all the uh, online stuff there sorted out. What's on tap today? Well, we're going to talk a little bit about leadership. And, uh, you know, I think leadership is a good thing. You've heard me talk about how, in my opinion, the best leaders are not the ones who create uh, big legions of followers, but rather those who create more leaders. I've got to look here at uh, how... The notion of leadership or seeking a leader, someone please lead me, show me which way to go, can constitute a failure of individual responsibility. Gary Barnett has a really interesting take on this and, you know, maybe something that, uh, that you could find useful. Also, we'll be talking about the president's proposed universal preschool as part of his American Families Plan. See, it's not just preschool, but also a free community college, paid leave, subsidized child care. I mean, it's a whole laundry list of goodies, you know. This is how government wants to help you. Well, Carrie McDonald, who is an education fellow for the Foundation for Economic Education, has four solid reasons to oppose the president's offer to invite even more government control into the lives of your kids via universal preschool. We'll talk about that. Also, if you are one of the people, one of the few, like me, who is in the control group, in other words, you haven't received your COVID vaccine, you may have been pushed from time to time to explain. Explain yourself. Why don't you have the vaccine? I mean, some people may sincerely want to know. Some people may, you know, look at you as, I don't know, a selfish conspiracy theorist. You know, there's a very hard push right now for vaccination. In fact, some people just openly calling for it to be mandatory. I saw a response from Jeff Minnick on intellectualtakeout.org that I thought was extremely well put as to why he hasn't gotten the vaccine. Oh, we'll also talk a little bit about failure. You know that most successful people don't actually have an aversion to failure because they learn from it and then use it as a point to continue to improve. Got a great essay from Lawrence W. Reed, um, The Inspiring Stories of Two Historic Business Failures by Legendary Entrepreneurs that reveal a very poignant truth about failure. Last but not least, because change seems to happen so incrementally, I think I've heard it described as it comes on cat's feet. We don't notice it. It's usually not until, you know, sometime later we're looking back and connecting dots and we go, wow, things have changed a lot. And if you have been wondering, for instance, how far has tech advanced in just the past 20 years? Alex Hammond 
has some really encouraging news and and, and a really interesting recounting of how far it's advanced. And, uh, you know, this is stuff that you don't notice as much on a day-to-day basis because, again, it's happening all the time and it's just happening around you. But um, pretty fascinating stuff. And, you know, the bottom line is more people's lives are getting better because of these advancements. So, yeah, there there are challenges. There are... Uh, there are some things that uh, that should concern us and that we should be wary of. However, there's also some good news. So we'll focus on that as well. Let's talk about the very notion of leadership is one of an abject failure of individual responsibility. Gary D. Barnett starts with a quote from Susie Kasem. <clears throat> this is from Rise Up and Salute the Sun, the rising of Susie, writings of Susie Kasem. It says, shame on the misguided, the blinded, the distracted, and the divided. Shame. You have allowed deceptive men to corrupt and desensitize your hearts and minds to unethically fuel their greed. And at this point, Gary asks, leadership? What a curious term for any intelligent man to utter. He says, how many times throughout my life have I listened to the masses clamoring for someone to lead them? Actually, the most prevalent attitude amongst the people is the desire to find the best leader, and the epitome of this phenomenon is the ludicrous idea of voting. This process is continuous, and it stretches from the heights of the presidency to the choosing of the local dog catcher. It seems that the quest of man is not to rely on their best judgment or even on their moral beliefs, but to seek out others to follow instead of trusting self. This dilemma has caused much harm and allowed the worst among us to control the human narrative. Gary Barnett says, Consider the living hell that has consumed this country and the world due to the multitude of followers listening to and bowing down to the evil few. Most find themselves at the mercy of the powerful. And this is certainly not necessary, and in fact is the absolute worst possible position for any society to consider. He says, It is my opinion that the only viable solution that would lead to an escape from this tyranny and put a stop to the great reset plan of the oligarchs is mass resistance and non-compliance by large numbers of people. Total disobedience, in other words, is crucial. Throw out all the so-called leaders and rely only on self. Now, the response most often received due to this solution comes in the form of a question. Who will tell me what to do and how to disobey? Recently, he says, a reader declared, Well, I'm sure you agree that this requires organization and powerful leadership. We currently have no powerful leadership or plan. But Gary Barnett says, no, this is not true, of course. The leadership has excessive power, is already running the show, and they have the ultimate plan to take total control over all. He says, when the collective seeks powerful leaders, they are seeking rule. The fallback position of the people tends to always rest on the premise of complete irresponsibility and confidence in a claimed superior commanding force. Because of this bastardized belief system, he says the people voluntarily contribute to their own misery and demise and have been throughout time too weak and apathetic to protect their own existence. Now, will this attitude ever change or will the common people simply be relegated to reside in a land of serfdom? Gary D. Barnett says, since the beginning of this country, or more accurately, the beginning of the end of this country, that time when the political class came up with a ruling document called the Constitution, ownership of the people by a governing body has been the prevailing state of existence. Throughout our history, this has become more evident with every passing administration. 
And what has been the people's only recourse? Well, they've been allowed to, by their rulers to pick a new pre-selected master or leader every four years. They always get the leader they so desire and deserve. And to this day, this process of voting, the epitome of absurdity continues without question. Gary Barnett says, given this scheme, is it any wonder that a fake virus pandemic has brought this country to its knees? He says, we live in a country with a one-party political system that masquerades as two. Nothing ever changes. The right people are always in charge, and the heinous and corrupt policies are never altered. The agendas sought by the few controlling elite have been fulfilled over time so that this system based on the total control of all people could go forward. And the final goal of total dominance has arrived, and the people still cry out for leadership. Now, he says, America's mainland has never been attacked, but the elite manipulators at the top of the power pyramid, with the help, with help from the selected political class, rather, have waged aggressive war for 94% of our history. Taxation, the theft and raping of the people, has reached heights never imagined. And all money and monetary policy has been designed so that few control all wealth through a central banking cartel. This could never be more apparent than it is at this very time as trillions upon trillions of dollars are being created out of thin air to bolster the wealth and power of those that are intent on controlling this entire society. All this and much more corruption, freedom destruction, torture, mass imprisonment and murder continue on unabated well, the people go to the polls to guarantee that their masters stay in power. They fight tooth and nail to get their chosen ruler, spewing hate toward one another. Never once realizing that this system has been rigged since minute one and that both sides always win and the people always lose. But now, he says, the damage has become extreme and the plot to take over for good is going forward without much resistance. The madness of this pandemic, or fake pandemic as he calls it, the propagandized fear-mongering that has consumed this society, is taking on a new form and will morph into a pre-planned conspiracy meant to complete by force a multitude of policy changes in order to advance many nefarious agendas simultaneously. And to help this along, the poisonous injection, falsely called a vaccine, will continue to be given to as many Americans as possible setting the stage for mass death in the future to advance the desired depopulation effect. Yeah, he's taking a pretty harsh view here. And I'm not saying you have to agree with all of it, but make no mistake about it, he says, looking for leaders can only assure defeat. Each and every person needs to become his own leader, his own ruler, needs to stand on his own two feet. And with progress in that direction, the fake leaders can be eliminated one by one and freedom restored. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. So I got a link to that Gary Barnett article in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Please take a look at it. While you're there, consider clicking on the link to subscribe to the podcast and maybe even consider becoming a regular patron or monthly donor. Whether you toss a shekel or five shekels or ten shekels my way each month, I, I want you to know I greatly appreciate those who find value in this content and are, are helping me to remain as focused on it as possible. 
I treat this as a very sacred trust, and uh, I appreciate those who, again, are, are helping to support this program. Let's talk about preschool. The president is proposing universal preschool as part of his American Families Plan. Carrie McDonald is uh, such a, a wonderful and refreshing voice on education choice. And so when I see that she has, uh, you know, something to offer, some clarification or just uh, some opinion to offer on, on things like universal preschool, you know, I, I want to know what she has to say. And she has four reasons to oppose Biden's universal preschool plan. She says, last week, President Biden unveiled his American Families Plan that would dramatically expand the federal government's role in education and family life. In addition to paid leave, subsidized child care, and two years of free community college for all Americans, the $1.8 trillion plan aims to provide taxpayer-funded universal preschool programs for all three- and four-year-olds. Now, paid for by tax hikes on high-income earners and accumulated wealth, Biden's proposed plan would actually cost closer to $2.5 trillion while increasing government debt and decreasing GDP. That's according to a new study released Wednesday by the Wharton School of Business. The Biden administration calculates that the free universal preschool proposal alone will cost $200 billion, although the Wharton model suggests that is a low estimate. So here are four primary reasons that free universal preschool long a goal of progressive activists and politicians, should be vigorously opposed. Number one, we need less government involvement in education, not more. Kerry McDonald says championing his American Families Plan in last week's speech to Congress, President Biden now guarantees four additional years of public education for every person in America starting as early as we can. I don't know why, maybe I'm just weird, but that sends a chill up my spine. We're going to guarantee four additional years of public education starting as early as we can. To me, that sounds a lot like we got to get our hands on these minds when they're young and pliable and start uh, training them the way they're supposed to think as early as possible. And, of course, he'll do that with two years of preschool and two years of community college. Biden said 12 years is no longer enough today to compete with the rest of the world in the 21st century. Now, Biden made the point this is, not, this is school, not daycare, which the teachers' unions will fully embrace. Kerry McDonald says the president also added that our nation made 12 years of public education universal in the last century. It made us the best educated, best prepared nation in the world. Yet, she says, the data doesn't support this assertion. In fact, U.S. academic performance is rather mediocre compared to other developed countries. According to the results of the most recent international PISA exam for 15-year-olds that assesses academic performance in 79 countries, 30 countries outperformed the U.S. in math and reading scores have remained flat for years. And these lackluster results occur even as the U.S. spends more on education than on other countries. Than other countries, rather. She says, within the U.S., academic performance in the nation's government schools is similarly bleak. The 2019 results of the National Assessment of Education Progress, or NAEP, which is often referred to as the nation's report card, revealed that math and reading scores dropped for 4th and 8th graders since 2017. For 12th graders, 2019 math scores were flat overall, and reading scores declined since the test was previously administered to seniors in 2015. Among the lowest-performing students, both math and reading scores dropped. 
Now, if the government can't even ensure strong academic outcomes for the K-12 through students currently within its purview, then why should its role be expanded to younger and older students with taxpayers footing the bill? Okay, that's reason one. Reason two, the federal government shouldn't be involved in education. Carrie McDonald says, I've written previously, there is no constitutional role for the federal government in education. As James Madison, known as the father of the Constitution, wrote in Federalist Paper Number 45, the powers delegated by the proposed Constitution to the federal government are few and defined. Those which are to remain in the state governments are numerous and indefinite. She says expanding the federal government's involvement in early childhood and higher education through Biden's Biden's proposed plan will create long-lasting tentacles at the state and local level that can be manipulated depending on who is in power in Washington, D.C. Education policy decisions should be made by individual states and communities without federal meddling. Our country's system of federalism allows for more localized decision-making and facilitates mobility and choice. If someone doesn't like a state policy or regulation, she can move elsewhere. This empowers taxpaying parents to vote with their feet against bad policies and for good ones. Now, Kerry says, if states like California or cities like New York City want to adopt universal preschool programs, well, that's up to their citizens. If they achieve positive educational outcomes, they can serve as models of success to other states and locales. And if not, they can offer cautionary lessons. But if the federal government imposes universal preschool across the nation, there will be less experimentation, less accountability, fewer options, and no escape. That's the downside of one-size-fits-all. Number three, she points out, government preschool is already a failure. We've had government preschool programs in place for decades, and they have failed to produce sustained, positive outcomes for students while costing taxpayers billions of dollars. Some studies show positive results of public preschool programs for low-income children, but these results are often fleeting. And for most middle- and upper-income children, the long-term benefits of preschool programs are negligible. In fact, she says the Brookings Institution explained back in 2017 that oft-cited studies showing positive gains from state pre-K programs are inadequate, and that more in-depth studies of the lasting impact of public pre-K programs, including the Head Start Impact Study and the Tennessee Voluntary Pre-K Study, revealed that any short-term benefits were gone by the end of kindergarten. More alarming, she says, by third grade, the academic performance of children in the Tennessee Pre-K program actually lagged behind the control group of children who did not participate in the program. Similarly troubling, by third grade, the children in the Head Start program were found by teachers to have more behavioral and emotional issues than the control group of children who did not attend the program. Now, the Vanderbilt University researchers who conducted the Tennessee Pre-K program analysis provide wise warnings for public preschool policy. They explain that the inauspicious findings of the current study offer a cautionary tale about expecting too much from state pre-K programs. And they continue, the fact that the Head Start Impact Study, the only other randomized study of a contemporary publicly funded pre-K program, also found few positive effects after the pre-K year. And that adds further cautions. 
State-funded pre-K is a popular idea, but for the sake of children and the promise of pre-K, credible evidence that a rather typical state pre-K program is not accomplishing its goals should provoke some reassessment. And finally, number four, expanding the welfare state weakens families. The American Families Plan is being touted as a program to strengthen families, but Kerry rightly points out more government involvement in education will only weaken them. Parents who choose not to send their kids to preschool or individuals who choose not to have children are going to bear the burden of subsidizing preschool for others. Universal preschool programs unnecessarily raise the cost of stay-at-home parenthood and impose additional costs on those who choose to remain childless. There's a link to this article in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Check it out. Carrie McDonald, always worth a read. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I just want to throw one quick thought in here. This is from Kerry McDonald's article, Four Reason to Oppose Biden's Universal Preschool Plan. And it's just simply this. She says Biden's American Families Plan is just the latest incursion in the war for par- the state's war with parents for control over their children. And she says no matter what taxpayer-funded freebies the government may offer as bait, parents must not yield another inch to the state when it comes to their sacred responsibilities to their children. She says to truly strengthen families and help children flourish, we should get government out of our lives and our learning. Good stuff. I'm very happy to uh, to know Carrie and strongly recommend to read her her work, read what she writes about. She's got a very solid take and and it's all based on the idea that, you know, nobody is better qualified to decide what is best for your child than you. Not to put too fine a point on it, but you know, I think I think most parents approach that with the understanding that their ultimate their ultimate accountability is to God. The state wants to be kind of a hybrid God-slash-parent that uh, covers every need that you could possibly have, and all it requires in return is that you give up your freedom. And it's okay to say, no thanks. All right, shifting gears. The official push to get as many people vaccinated against COVID-19 as possible. I mean, it's taken some pretty interesting turns. Lots of incentives. I actually saw an article a few days ago about uh, different businesses that will give you freebies if you show them, you know, proof of your vaccination. And I mean, while that sounds kind of cool on the one hand, I I don't know. If it's such a good idea, you got to be bribed, you know, in order to do it or threatened in order to do it. Maybe, maybe it's not such a great idea. And then there's those of us who have chosen to abstain from the vaccine. I'm part of the control group is what I tell people if if they ask, not that it's any of their business, but you know, have you got have gotten vaccinated? No, I'm part of the control group. Okay. Well, we are sometimes portrayed as selfish conspiracy theorists. How dare you just think of yourself and you know, how dare you be the kind of person who who doesn't go along with what everybody else is doing? I don't know if you're one of those people who uh, has has been, you know, questioned over why you haven't gotten the vaccine. 
Here is the response from Jeff Minnick in a piece he wrote for intellectualtakeout.org. And it's titled, Thanks But No Thanks, Why I Haven't Gotten the Vaccine. In a recent conversation with an internist, he said, the good doctor asked me whether I'd gotten a COVID-19 vaccine. When I told him no, he then asked if I intended to get it at all. Not unless someone forces it on me, I said. I then asked him the same question. And he said, I got the first injection, but I think I'm skipping the second one. I've read up on it, and the first injection is probably good enough. The doctor then cited some statistics, and we let the subject drop. Now, Jeff Minnick says, many people I know, young and old, have received the COVID-19 vaccine, and some are quite proud of that fact. Others just shrug and say, yeah, I got the vaccine. A couple of these people were quite sick after the second injection, but most of the others showed few, if any, negative effects. Jeff Minnick says, one of my acquaintances was visibly upset and angry to learn that I refused to be vaccinated, which I don't quite understand. If you've been vaccinated and I've rebuffed it, and if these vaccines work, then why would my refusal anger you? You're safe. I'm the one at risk. He says, a reader of Intellectual Takeout contacted me about a recent article I wrote regarding masks and COVID-19 and then asked for my thoughts on COVID-19 vaccination. So here goes. Jeff Minnick says, despite a couple of bad habits and my age, I turned 70 in March. I am in reasonably good health. He says, my annual physical in April revealed nothing physically amiss with me. And though it's true the vast majority of virus victims are my age or older, it's also true that many of those who died suffered from underlying conditions like obesity, diabetes, or heart or lung problems. So he says, while I don't feel immune, I don't also feel in danger of death should I contract the virus. Next item. About three years ago, Jeff says he got a flu shot. Two days later, he says, I woke with my left arm partially paralyzed. Now he says that my doctor and a friend told me I'd probably just slept funny on my arm. Were they correct? Well, the sensation of a foot or hand falling asleep is familiar to me, and I've felt stiff in the joints on waking many times, but never had I experienced anything like this lack of sensation and function in a limb, which lasted most of the day. He says, that was the year I swore off flu shots. Now, he says, I also spend a lot of time alone in a large house. My excursions outside this house include trips to the coffee shop, the bookstore, the library, and church attendance on Sunday. This life of solitude greatly lowers the odds of my exposure to COVID-19. Now, for a broader take on my refusal to join the ranks of the vaccinated, he says, first up is caution. Given my low chances of catching the virus, and who knows, maybe I've already contracted COVID-19 and didn't even know it, why would I risk sickness or severe medical complications from one of these vaccines? And he says, given my isolation, I really don't put others at risk. Then there are the politics of the pandemic. We've gone from masks are useless to everyone needs a mask. We've imposed, imposed school closures, even though we know school children are the least vulnerable to this illness. We've shuttered businesses for months with no real proof that these closures did any good. This politics of fear continues to drive our reaction to the virus. Some colleges, for example, insist their students get vaccinated, despite all medical evidence that these young people have little chance of suffering the worst effects of the virus. He says governments and private enterprises alike are seriously discussing vaccine passports, 
which would only allow those who can prove they've received the injection to travel abroad or enter places of business, an insidious and fascistic plan never before employed in America. Dan Gerlner, let me try that again, Gerlertner addresses this uh, fear and panic in his excellent article, I'm Still Not Getting the Vaccine, writing, I've got news for you. If you spend all your time worrying about getting sick, you're sick already. America is having a giant, hysterical, hypochondriacal fit. Now, this confusion and irrationality about effective ways to fight the pandemic with its attendant terror increases my skepticism about vaccines, about the vaccines, says Jeff Minnick. Here's just one example. He says, if these vaccines work, then why do those who took the needle still need to wear masks? Explain, please. Finally, he says, I've contemplated the worst-case scenario if I became infected, which, is of course, which of course is death. Were I to bite the dust because of COVID-19, some might consider me an idiot for having refused vaccination, literally dead wrong in my decision-making. But he says, fortunately, you know, maybe it may, he says, perhaps, but fortunately I live in a country where I'm still allowed to make personal choices, however foolish or wrong-headed. So for all of you who've been vaccinated, good for you. He says, I mean that. But please stop with the moral superiority and stop badgering and threatening the rest of us. Yeah, I think I agree here. It's, you know, I'm not going to stop you. I'm not going to tell you you should not get the vaccine. I don't believe in the one-size-fits-all approach. I do think people should be cautious. It's, it's helpful, I think, to remember that, uh, you know, this is still experimental at this point. But I'm not going to stop you. All I ask is the same respect for my decision to remain a part of the control group and not to jump on the bandwagon. And if that means, well, we're going to have to steer clear of you, Brian. Okay, I'm all right with that. If if that's what I need to do, then then great. All right, shifting gears. I want to touch on this one just briefly. Um, with the, with the twin the 2020s upon us, there's been a lot of advances in tech over the last 20 years. And this is actually a piece that was written a little over a year ago by Alex Hammond for the Foundation for Economic Education. And the 20 most significant technological advancements we've made in the last 20 years, I'm just going to go through the list here real quick. Tell me how many of these you use on a daily basis. Smartphones, flash drives, Skype, Google, Google Maps, the Human Genome Product, project rather youtube graphene bluetooth facebook i know we all kind of <laughs> okay the uh, curiosity the mars rover electric cars driverless cars the large hadron collider the abiocore artificial heart 3d printing amazon kindle stem cell research multi-use rockets and gene editing I mean, these are pretty common, right? But does it surprise you when you stop and think, you know, um, 20 years ago, none of those things were, were a thing. And now we just take them as commonplace. And, oh, yeah, well, of course, man. Why wouldn't somebody have a smartphone as they're working on their gene editing and you know, simultaneously carrying out a, uh, you know, Skype call? Anyway, you get the point. Isn't it astonishing and maybe even just a little bit marvelous that... In the palm of my hand, I hold a device with which I can instantly connect with my daughter on the other side of the world. I can wave and talk to my little granddaughter. 
and we treat it like it's pretty casual. I mean, it's hard to remember the days when we had to send photographs in the mail and wait weeks for them to arrive. I'd say things are getting better in so many ways. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And once again, we are back. You know, reveling in wrong thinking isn't just pointing out all the things that, uh, you know, are contrary to the counter-narrative. It's also being willing to boldly go places where sometimes we're a little bit afraid to go. And I don't know about you, but contemplating the prospect of failure, um, I, I have to admit... And I regretfully have to admit, as I look back over my life, I spent way too long being failure-averse, meaning I would go far out of my way to avoid the possibility of failure, which at the time seemed like, you know, a, a smart thing to do. Well, of course, I just want to make sure that I'm, you know, protecting myself and my family and not uh, setting myself up for any embarrassment or anything like that. And it wasn't until quite a bit later on in life that I started to realize, okay, no matter how good you are at avoiding failure, you're not going to avoid it entirely. Failure will happen sometimes. And for those who have experienced it and who embrace it as a part of life, it's actually a very positive thing. I don't know where I got it in my head that it's the thing that has to be avoided at all costs, but I was so happy to find an article here from Larry Reed, Lawrence W. Reed from the Foundation for Economic Education, Two historic business flops by legendary entrepreneurs reveal a poignant truth about failure. And this is, uh, this, this is a nice little shot in the arm. This may be the best thing you hear all day. Larry says, in this essay, I want to tell readers about two of the last century's big and fascinating business failures. But first, here are some related insights. In her 2008 commencement address at Harvard University, Harry Potter author J.K. Rowling famously asserted, it is impossible to live without failing at something, unless you live so cautiously that you might as well not have lived at all, in which case you fail by default. Larry says, so many well-known business people failed before they succeeded or failed at something after they succeeded, that learning from failure is a cardinal rule of entrepreneurship. The difference between a bad entrepreneur and a good one is not failure, but rather allowing failure to sink you or to teach you. Motivational speaker Dennis Waitley said, Failure should be our teacher, not our undertaker. Failure is delay, not defeat. It's a temporary detour, not a dead end. Failure is something we can avoid only by saying nothing, doing nothing, and being nothing. Now, Larry Reed says, risk is unavoidable in an ever-changing and uncertain world. You cannot avoid failure by trying to avoid risk. You will simply fail in the effort and reduce your chances for success. The entrepreneur assembles factors of production in the present and hopes that his decisions will be validated by the future market conditions he anticipates. But not even the smartest human being knows everything about the tomorrow that has not happened yet. Risk of failure is inherent in any investment in an uncertain future. So, like his father before him, candy maker Milton Hershey flopped multiple times before he prospered. So did cartoonist, filmmaker, and theme park pioneer Walt Disney. But being good entrepreneurs, they didn't give up. They learned, and they persevered. 
Reasons for failure include poor planning or poor implementation of a plan, undercapitalization, managing people badly, lousy marketing, innovating too slowly, underestimating the competition, being overwhelmed by the unforeseen, or simply failing to learn from the previous failures. You can fail because you didn't think big enough, and you can fail because you think too big. He says you can fail for any number of reasons and sizes in between. This excerpt from Theodore Roosevelt's April 1910 Man in the Arena speech in Paris provides me with the perfect seg to the rest of this essay. It is not the critic who counts, nor the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood who strives valiantly, who errs and who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who actually strive, who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Now, Larry Reed says, The two business flops I want readers to know about featured two North American entrepreneurs operating decades apart, but in the same South American country, Brazil. The first was Henry Ford. The second was Daniel K. Ludwig. To borrow again from TR, they dared greatly. Henry Ford's name was known everywhere a century ago and likely still is today. When the last Model T rolled off his assembly line in Michigan in 1927, making way for its successor, the Model A, he had sold 15 million of them for an average of a few hundred dollars apiece. By enriching so many people with the first mass-produced affordable automobile, Ford became rich himself. But solving problems was always more interesting to him than making money. Dealing with a British rubber monopoly was the option that, or the problem rather that gave him a big idea. Knowing that Brazil's Amazon region was packed with rubber trees that produced the latex needed to make automotive tires, Ford set his sights on building his own rubber operation there. He negotiated with the Brazilian government and in 1927 finalized an agreement by which he secured 2.5 million acres along the Tapajos River, 100 miles south of where it flowed into the Amazon at the city of Santarum. In exchange, he would have to, have to give the, prod, the government rather a 9% share of the profits. The centerpiece of the project would be a new town which the auto magnet christened Fordlandia. Talk about thinking big. The man from Dearborn envisioned not only a massive rubber-producing operation 4,000 miles from home, but also a utopian village where his Midwest American values would transform a foreign society. It was a Herculean challenge in every way, logistically, environmentally, culturally, and economically. It took a small fortune, and only six years before Fordlandia collapsed. The Brazilian workers disliked American food and cared even less for Ford's ban on alcohol, even in their homes. Bugs and diseases did not approve of the rubber trees Ford's managers planted. Fordlandia closed, and Ford moved operations upriver, but within a decade, those shut down too. The invention of synthetic rubber in the 1940s made natural rubber obsolete. Now, Ford's handson, grandson, rather Henry II, sold everything back to the Brazilian government in 1945 for a loss in today's dollars of nearly 300 million dollars. 
Daniel Ludwig, also a Michiganian, never gained the notoriety of Henry Ford, but that was fine with him. He deliberately shunned the limelight his entire life. His Brazil project in the 60s and 70s, though, was just as spectacular as Ford's. Ludwig's first entrepreneurial venture took the form of transporting lumber and molasses on freighters plying the Great Lakes. He was just 19 when he started the company. Over the next half century, he built one of the world's largest fortunes by mastering the business of shipping. He practically invented the supertanker, and he was also involved in hotels, insurance, orange groves, oil refining, and cattle ranching. <clears throat> At the age of 70, long after he could have retired to a life of luxury, Ludwig came up with his big Brazil idea. He bought four million acres, not far from the ruins of Fordlandia, and planned to build a pulp paper mill. But first he would create a model community called Monte Dorado and develop local agriculture to feed the inhabitants he hoped would work in the mill. A tall order grew much taller when Ludwig decided that rather than construct the mill from scratch on site, it was more feasible to build it in Japan and ship it across the ocean to Brazil. That's right, he built an entire paper mill in Japan and towed it in two giant pieces all the way to Brazil and then hundreds of miles up the Amazon. Now, Larry Reed says, perhaps it will tell you how unentrepreneurial I am that the thought of such a venture would never have occurred to me at any age. But Larry Reed says, I'm grateful there are people in the world who are obviously more courageous and more visionary than me. Once the plant was assembled in 1979, it began producing 750 tons of cellulose every day. Nonetheless, the project as a whole yielded losses that forced Ludwig to sell it to Brazilian investors in 1981. He devoted the remaining decade of his life to funding cancer or to financing cancer research, donating hundreds of millions of dollars for that purpose. Larry Reed says, "What are we to make of the gargantuan gambles that like Fordlandia and Monte Dorado? The small-minded will be quick to criticize, to be sure. They're probably the same people who dismiss the dreams of present-day entrepreneurs who explore the deepest ocean floor or to uh, colonize Mars. But he says, for me, however, you won't hear anything but an encouraging word when someone thinks big, especially if they do it with their own money. Bottom line is, Larry Reed says, do not be afraid of failure. Be prepared to learn from it. Do not fail to take a risk because you're afraid the dream might not succeed. If fear of failure were all it took for humans to fail to act, wouldn't we still be living in caves? He says, I don't sneer at failures like the two I've written about here. I marvel at them and wish I had half the courage to try such remarkable ventures. It's indicative of a spirit without which humanity's existence would be dull and stagnant. And he says it's no compliment to be among those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Pretty powerful stuff. Yes, there's a link in the show notes. Check it out for yourself. It's at thebrianheidshow.com. Thanks again for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. This is The Brian Hyde Show.